Well, in the course of our study, we're in Daniel chapter 8, and uh, if you thought 7 was exciting, 8 is going to set somebody else's hair on fire by the time we're done. Uh, It's great fun. And then chapter 9, and we'll talk about a little how this book unfolds uh, in, in more detail next week, actually. But what will happen after this is that uh, uh, in chapter 9, 9 is divided into two sections, Daniel's prayer, which is kind of a response to what happens in chapter 8, and then a little more revelation. You're going to see this kind of unpack as we work through these various portions of Scripture. If, and, and this helps us then see how it is that God often does work through revelation, and this would be an important paradigm for us to get. If you get this pattern that's going on in chapter, well, in, in the whole prophetic section of, one, of 7 through 12 in Daniel, it'll help you interpret some other passages of Scripture because this pattern repeats itself. And so you remember that in chapter 2 we saw the vision of the 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 large statue that was divided into four sections, and then that was interpreted as being four different kingdoms that would reign. And then a a version of that gets repeated in Daniel's vision where he sees four beasts coming out of the ocean or out of the great sea, and that those are four kingdoms which get named for us in Scripture. And now he's going to move and focus on a couple of those, and then he's going to narrow his focus yet more. Uh, so uh, say you're looking at a picture of the earth here, uh, but you say, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, we dwell on this whole globe. We dwell on the planet. We just don't dwell in our little corner of it. But then when you draw up a little closer, um, you can make out things like New York State and Lake Ontario there. You can kind of see where we are in the mix, but we're still kind of far away and then we're going to draw up even closer and when you draw up closer yet you can see the canal here which you couldn't see earlier and you can see Fairport and you can see where we are at this very moment we're in this building marked Parenton Community Center and then if you even draw closer yet you can see it in graphic detail now that's what happens in Daniel he starts with a bird's eye view these four kingdoms and Daniel himself is kind of wondering Where does Israel figure into this? I mean, I'm a Jew, and my people are suffering, and and okay, I get these four kingdoms and then the kingdom of Christ coming, and so God then draws in a little closer and then a little closer, and he gets a better picture of it as he goes along, but we don't want to forget that in God's timetable and in God's overall plan, he's dealing with global things, not just us. Interesting how our prayer lives all center around us and not in a broader context. And we're going to see that next week as we move into chapter 9, that it's going to play an important role in Daniel's thinking. You're going to see how he, has, how he transitions and what that means for him. So he goes back and he says, Wow, I've been reading the Old Testament prophets, and I see that the time of Israel's restoration, that their exile was to be 70 years, and that time's almost up. And what do I do about that? And... What he does about that is he, he runs to prayer. So, interesting, we, we see, and as a matter of fact, that little graphic I had at the beginning, troubled times with the sky, sky on fire and everything, I found that this week on a website that said that Planet 12, um, which is three times the size of Earth and 12 times the mass, is going to pass by Earth, and its gravitational pull will actually stop our Earth's rotation for three days, which will bring about all the cataclysms in the book of Revelation. And there's absolutely no doubt because that planet passes by every 3,600 years. Last time it did was during the Exodus, and that's going to happen. And then pretty much life is going to end in 1993. (laughs) This is where you don't want to be going with prophecy. And it's where Daniel doesn't want to be going, and he wants to help us work through that in the process. God is good to us in working through all of that. So let's move on. And you'll remember that last week we established that there's a... I'm just using this as a method for working through this prophetic or apocalyptic literature, that we want to pay attention to things that we know for certain out of the text, and those are the things we want to major on. 
after things that are certain, there are certain things that are reasonable. We can extrapolate and say, I got pretty good, pretty good reasons biblically for believing this may be what's going on there. And then there's speculative things. Does this play out in the far, far distance? We don't want to spend the majority of our time here. We want to spend the majority of our time up there, the things that are certain, and draw our deepest lessons from that and understand those and make sure that our faith is established in the certain things uh, and not in the speculative things. So much like chapter 7, chapter 8 has a very almost identical outline. Uh, I'm going to give that to you just quickly. I can't remember if I put that in your notes or not. I think I may have. Um, But it has an introduction in verses 1 and 2. Let's just take a look at that very, very quickly. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, now you remember, Daniel was brought into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has long since passed off the scene, and now his grandson, Belshazzar, is on the throne. And this is Belshazzar only reigns a very short time, and then he's conquered by the Medes and the Persians, which we get a few chapters back. But let's work through this. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Belshazzar is the one who saw the writing on the wall. After that, which appeared to me at the first, I saw a previous vision. Remember, that's how it started in chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar the king. So this is now a couple years later. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, uh, a vision appeared to me, verse 2, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. We don't know where he was physically, but in the vision, he saw himself in Susa, the capital, which would have been quite a ways from, from uh, uh, Babylon, which was the capital of the empire at that time. You want to pay attention to his dating here, the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. The reason why is that Daniel has this vision about two years, or at least somewhere in that neighborhood, after he has the first one in chapter 7, and Belshazzar only rules for less than three years. He's only been king for over a little over two years when Darius the Mede comes in. So Daniel gets these visions like weeks or days before the incident with the handwriting on the wall and Daniel saying, your kingdom's going to fall. I mean, it's, it's right on its heels. So all this stuff is fresh in his mind when you go back to chapter 5 and, and you help that. And again, the, uh, the actual location is, is unknown. Secondly, verses 3 through 12 give us the vision proper. Uh, We'll go through that. I won't go through that in detail right now, but to to just kind of uh, summarize it, he sees the vision of the ram with, with two horns and the goat with one horn and then a little horn that comes out of one of the four horns, and that'll all get explained as we work through it. But the vision proper only lasts through those those particular verses. But then, in verses 13 and 14, there's an elaboration of some of the material. Again, the the vision starts outwardly and draws in and then draws a little closer. So you get some elaboration on what's happening here. And there we get the prediction about 2,300 evenings and mornings. Uh, Actually, if you've got your Bible in front of you, let me go back. Verse Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And it had two horns. Both horns were high, but the one was higher than the other. We'll go back and look at those in a few minutes. Uh, And the higher one came up last. And I saw a ram charging westwards and northwards and southwards. And no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Why didn't he charge east? He's already in the east. So he's expanding his, his influence, if you will, west, north, and south. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous uh, horn between his eyes. 
Conspicuous, the idea means there that it's prominent, that it calls to your attention. And there may be some other things that surround it. We'll come back and deal with that later. But it's conspicuous. It, you, you can't miss it. Okay? Um, and he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. This is like a, 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 an episode of Wild Kingdom. Uh, I can just see, for those of you who remember Marlon Perkins, I can, he's, he's just going crazy right now. So the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great, toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Glorious land is a term that's used in other Old Testament books to refer to Israel, to the land of Israel, specifically. And it became great, um, even to the host of, uh, it grew great, sorry, verse 10, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw to the ground and trampled on them. Hmm. Interesting to see stars trampled on the ground. If we get a good interpretation of this, it may help us if you're reading the book of Revelation and read about stars being cast down to the earth. What, what are they getting at? Fortunately, in this passage, the angels actually interpret the whole vision for us. So we've got solid ground to work on. And verse 11, it became great even as, the, as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. This is going to be startling to Daniel because when Daniel's seeing this vision, sanctuary doesn't exist. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar almost 70 years earlier. So he's getting a glimpse that at some point the, the temple's going to be rebuilt. There's going to be a, a sanctuary again. But this is his first inclination, his first understanding of that. And a host will be given over to it. A group of people will be given over to this, this horn with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking. Now, this is kind of fun. This is the elaboration. Happens in 13 and 14. He gets to overhear an angelic conversation. And then he gets brought into the conversation, but he gets to hear this. And so I heard a holy one, some angel, some being standing there speaking, and another one said to the one who spoke, I got a question. I mean, we're watching this with Daniel, and my question is, how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? That's pretty ugly stuff, and how long is that going to take? I mean, how long is it going to last? And the other one says back, but doesn't say back to the angel, but says to Daniel. The angel knows the question that's in Daniel's heart, apparently, at this point. And he wants to know, too. And so the angel said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. We're going to unpack that statement, at least in our area of what's reasonable, when we get there in just a little bit. So he asks that question, and then in 15 through 19, Daniel has a little more of a Q&A. So when I had seen it, I sought to understand it. And so there stood one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the canal, and it called, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Don't leave this a mystery. Don't let him just surmise what's going on here. Tell him what's going on so we can get this out there. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face, but he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And this is going to be a big question. A time of the end? The end of what? Because if you just let your mind make a leap, you may go too far, and fortunately that's going to get explained for us too. And he does that. He qualifies what end he's talking about in the next verses. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and he touched me and made me stand up. I love these angelic visitations that cause people to sleep. I keep praying for that for myself. 
And he said, Behold, I'll make known to you what will be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. There is an indignation, a period of God's indignation. And this vision has to do with the period of God's indignation. Indignation against who? Well, that will get unpacked for us. We'll work through that. And then... Okay, that's, he gets this, the, refers to that, that particular time. And then, in verses 20 through 25, we get the interpretation of the vision as a whole. We'll come back and unpack that in steps. I won't do that this very instant. But we see that there's the nation of the Medo-Persian Empire, there's the Grecian Empire, and then there's this other mysterious empire. And then, in verse 26, he gets a commission. Daniel does. And the commission is, seal this up. Uh, in other words, make it secure, because this is going to be needed down the road. Other people are going to need this. You get that same language in the book of Revelation, where both seals are unpacked, and then at the end of the book of Revelation, certain things are kept from view, but protected to be seen at a later date. And then the final portion, verse 27, Daniel has a response to all of this. I'll just say uh, early on, to catch it, while Daniel is... is just enormously impacted by this whole thing. It says in verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. I love this. People are always saying, Oh, I got this vision from God. And, and it's like the same way I get visions when I eat pizza before I go to bed. You know, they don't have this huge lasting impact on me. They don't, they don't shake my soul. This, this guy was wrecked by it. He lay sick for some days, and then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Even though he's powerfully impacted, he isn't paralyzed by it. Nothing in Scripture is meant to paralyze us. It's meant to inform us so that we can continue in what we're doing. He goes about the king's business. He doesn't say, oh, okay, all bets are off. I know what's going to happen here, and I'm just going to you know, go out and sit on a mountaintop until all these things come to pass. No, I'm going to continue about the king's business. And that king is about to be overthrown, but he doesn't, he doesn't stop. Well, then, what's, what's certain for us? What can we know absolutely as we work through this? And first, we can know that this is talking about the Medo-Persian Empire, which is going to expand north, south, and west for a season. How do we know that? Well, you go back and you look at verses 3 and 4, and you see this vision of the the ram that's standing by the bank of the canal with two horns, and one horn comes up later and it's bigger than the other. Fortunately, verse 20 has the explanation. The angel says, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns. Woo! Explain it. Okay. These are the kings of Media and Persia. Got it! And we know from the previous portion in verses 3 and 4, that this ram is going to charge west and north and south, and nothing will be able to stand in its way. So he tells us here clearly what's going on. The Medo-Persian Empire, that's his person, doesn't it? That's what happens when I do these slides too late at night. The Medo-Persian Empire will expand, not the Medo-Person, whoever that person may be, um, will expand north, south, and west for a season. All right. So this, this empire is going to grow. It's going to have this expansive Time. One commentator that I read, I thought, had a great had a great um, uh, comment on seeing this this ram and then seeing the goat that follows it and all of that. You know, in the first vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, you've got this great statue with all of this this mighty looking stuff, and then in Daniel's first vision, he sees four beasts coming out of the out of the sea, and they're they're scary and they're frightening and they're monstrous. And the guy says, but when you get a little closer and God gives him a little clearer understanding, those monstrous global beasts are nothing more than overgrown farm animals. It's not that big a deal in God's eyes. From his perspective, this is not monstrous. It's just overgrown farm animals getting done what he needs done in the earth. So we'll, we'll see how that all uh, pads out in the future. By the way, I mentioned, um, I, I think it was, um, was uh, uh, Sue Grape who asked a couple weeks ago, uh, about some literature maybe that's good to read on the perspective we're taking through this. There is a commentary on the book of Daniel that I highly recommend. It's very readable, 
very accessible, very practical. It's not pie in the sky. It's written by Rodney Stortz. Uh, it's called The Triumph of God's Kingdom. Uh, you can buy it through Amazon or almost any place. Uh, Rodney passed away just, I think, about five years ago. He was pastor of Twin Oaks Presbyterian Church in, uh, uh, out near St. Louis. He was a wonderful commentator and uh, worked through this. And uh, it, that's a really, really readable, reliable even if I disagree with him on a couple of minor points, it's a great commentary to have and, and uh, one that won't, won't leave you confused and, uh, and thinking that uh, Planet 12 will be attacking us in 1993. Uh, secondly, what do we know? Well, we know from verse 21 that this ram that comes out of nowhere gets explained to us. As for the, the ram which you saw, verse 20... With the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat, with the big conspicuous horn, the goat is the king of Greece. Well, that's helpful. Matter of fact, we're going to find later in the the vision, they explain the first king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. You've got this kingdom, and the first king and the first king of the United Macedonian Grecian Empire was Alexander the Great. And he's the one who came and conquered the Medo, I got Persian right this time, empire. Maybe he just wanted their rugs. I'm not sure. But anyway, he comes and we we know historically that's how that developed. And so history bears out what the angel's interpretation was. Now, then we get a third one that we can know for certain. That the Greek king is going to lose his power and four others are going to Rise up in his place. Look at verse 22. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise out of his nation. Pretty clear. So we get what's happening historically. That's This horn will be broken off. This king will, will pass away. And as a matter of fact, this, um, this Greek leader is going to lose his power at his peak. Uh, We'll come back and look at that in a little bit. And four more will come up, but you're not going to have the cohesion in the the empire that you had previously. Uh, And then we know that out of that, out of those four, a new leader is going to emerge from the southern division, and this one's going to greatly impact Israel. Look at verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, matter of fact, this four, this, this, empire that grew out of the Grecian empire with four heads of it only lasted about 20 years and then it started to bust up into other groups and this is one of those one of those um, uh, decompartmentalizations um, at the latter end of their kingdom when the transgressors have reached their limit uh, it's going to be a question who's the transgressors we'll come back to that When the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold countenance, one who understands riddles, shall arise. It's an interesting way. It's an old Hebraism for somebody who's sly, who's wily, who's clever. Uh, I would say a a good way to put that is that he's politically savvy. Uh, It's not that he's a, a great intellectual genius, but he knows how to work the system. And uh, we know a man who fits this bill, who grew out of that group, who ascends to the throne, and he didn't do it through military might, he did it through political intrigue. We'll come and we'll find him in just a second. And anyway, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy many mighty men and the people who are the saints." Now remember, we had this statement back over in um, uh, earlier that these stars were going to be thrown to the ground and trampled. And now the angel, as he's unfolding it, tells us the interpretation. Who are these stars? They are the mighty people. They're people of of power, of import, of, of standing, and of station. So as the angel unpacks it, we get more and more insight into what's going on. He'll succeed in what he does, and he's going to hurt the people, destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall be great. 
We've all heard that statement. He's a legend in his own mind. Better than he's a legend in his own time. This is what this leader is going to be. In his own mind, he's going to become great. And without warning, he's going to destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Astounding. Fifth, as we just read through those verses, this leader is going to be politically savvy, and he will egotistically seek to crush Judaism to the point of destroying the rebuilt temple. He's going to to cause all kinds of difficulty, and he's going to prosper in this. And then uh, we're told that the vision of the evening and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. What happens, and again, reflecting back on verses 13 and 14, that during this period... The post-exile Jews will have no temple or sacrifice for a season. We know historically that they're going to leave the Babylonian captivity, go back to Israel, start to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, and it does get rebuilt. We know that historically. And then there's great devastation that happens. And then seventh, this leader will eventually lose power, but not through natural means, not by overthrow. Now, I want us to to make one quick note here. He'll be removed by natural means. You you see it says he'll be removed, broken, but by no human hand. Um, the, The truth is, here's where, and sometimes people will import this vision into the vision of Antichrist that's to come later. And unfortunately, when that happens, we lose sight of the fact that Antichrist will, in fact, be conquered directly by Christ when he returns. This gives us a different picture, broken off a different way. Something else is happening here. Matter of fact, 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's a whole whole different concept than what's going on here. Well, now, What is reasonable for us then to draw from all of this as we start to work through it? And some things that will be helpful for your own understanding. First, the two horns of the ram standing by the canal. We know that that's the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, but it probably signifies the dual nature of that empire, especially when it tells us that one horn came up later and eclipsed the former one. That's what happened. In the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian portion of the, of the um, empire came up and eclipsed the Medo portion and became really the whole of it. So we've got a, a good way of depicting how the events will take place as we work through that. It's a pretty reasonable assumption as you work through the, the imagery there. Secondly, the first horn, which is larger, shows the gradual prominence of the Persian branch. And then, I think it's reasonable for us to not only look at the swift goat as Greece, but the first king of Greece, which we're told in the vision. And the first king of Greece was Alexander the Great. And he had a rapid overthrow of Medo-Persia. As a matter of fact, he came out of the, the west, attacking east and north and south, and in less than, well, in just about, three years. This is the great picture of this goat kind of sailing over the land, flying. In three years, he wiped out the leading world power, Medo-Persia. Three years. And he's only in his 30s. He's an incredible general. And he comes on the scene and he does this, and it takes him only three years to overcome. Uh, The picture of just one conspicuous horn shows us, gives us an idea of, of his single leadership. He has unified the whole Greek empire under himself, and the conspicuous horn broken talks about his rather untimely and shocking demise. As a matter of fact, he was 32. Uh, there's still intrigue around how he, he died. He was not killed by a human being unless they poisoned him. But he grew sick after partying hardy, um, lasted 12 to 14 days, and was gone at the height of his power. He was broken off. 
You see how the, the interpretation and then reason from that brings you a lot of fascinating information. For conspicuous horns, I think we're in pretty good standing on identifying as the division of the Grecian Empire. After, um, there was a little bit of, and you'll, you'll see there's some other details that surround this. They're the conspicuous horns. They aren't necessarily the only ones, but they're the ones that take prominence. In fact, the empire broke up into a number of different factions and then gradually coalesced under these four, and then that four only lasted for about 20 years. So you've heard about Ptolemy. The Ptolemies took the portion of Egypt and to the southwest. Seleucus took a portion to the, to the northeast. Lysimachus went to the w- northwest. And then Cassander all the way over in Greece and Macedonia. And the, the empire was divided up among these four. Alexander had a son who probably should have been the heir to the throne, but he was plotted against and murdered. And as, a, as an infant, and wasn't allowed to take the throne. And then the four generals carved up everything among themselves. Actually, there were five, but it quickly emerged into four. It solidified as four for about 20 years, and then even one of them dropped out of the, out of the picture, and it went to three. But Scripture doesn't take us quite that far. And then we get to this little horn that grows up out of the southwest. Hmm. Who might that be? I'm going to argue that it's Antiochus Epiphanes. What happens is that in that one kingdom, southern kingdom of the Ptolemies, he comes to prominence, and he is a crafty man. He has no right to the throne, but by political intrigue, he maneuvers around all of his enemies, sets up these huge political structures, sees to it that they are eliminated and that he takes prominence. Matter of fact, he starts challenging the Seleucid Empire, and that's a whole other thing we'll get into later. And in the process, and this is where you get, let's, let's go back to those, those verses. Um, look down again to uh, verse 24. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He wasn't a military guy, but he was a, a, a savvy guy. And he'll cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. This is awesome. Because he calls himself Epiphanes, the manifestation of God. That's a great way to... That's, if you're going to get a title for yourself, go big. All right? I always, I always like Cromwell's title, Lord Protector. I'm trying to get a leather coat with that on it. But, but he calls himself Epiphanes, the manifestation of God. And during, and what happens is when he takes power, initially these four kingdoms kind of let Israel hobble along on its own. They didn't pay much attention to it. It was there. It slipped back and forth between the jurisdiction of the larger four kingdoms, but nobody paid much attention to it because part of, part of the Grecian way of doing things was let people have their gods and, and subjugate them another way, but not Antiochus. After he takes power, he makes a real grab for Israel, and he wants to, be, he wants to dominate them, and he wants to bring Grecian culture to them. So what does he do? Well, he, he begins to outlaw the Torah. You can no longer read the Jewish Bible. He steps in and says, nope, that's it, done. And, in fact, you have to start worshiping the Greek gods and their pantheon. He outlaws prayers. He outlaws the sacrifices that have been restored in this new temple that they built after the exile. As a matter of fact, God's station, one of the things that he required of the Jews was that they have two sacrifices every day a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And 2,300 morning and evenings are removed. He not only removes them, says you can't sacrifice anymore, he comes in and sacrifices a pig on the altar of the temple. Of course, swine is unclean flesh to the Jews. This was a total sacrilege. And then he sets up an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Says you have to worship this foreign god. 
and he starts an out-and-out slaughter campaign against the Jews. Now, this had to be troubling for Daniel to look down the pike and say, we're near the end of our 70 years of exile. You mean to tell me that we're going to go back to Jerusalem, we're going to rebuild the temple and the city, and then somewhere down the line, this devastation is going to happen? God says, yeah, it's exactly what's going to happen. It's pretty scary stuff. The period, we're told, of the worst of the trial will last about three years. Uh, 2,300 evenings and mornings can be taken two different ways. Either 2,300 days, which would be roughly six years, or 2,300 morning sacrifices and 2,300 evening sacrifices. And if we take it that way, then the worst of the trial will last three years, and it is almost three years to the day after Antiochus sets up his slaughters the pig and sets up the statue of Zeus in the temple, almost three years to the day, the Jews in revolt overthrow that and recapture the temple and restore the sacrifices. So I think from history we've got pretty good reason why to interpret that 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices put together and that that all comes back. And then we're reminded that the end that's referred to here as in the earlier verses, especially 15 through 19, refers to the latter end of the indignation, not the end of the world. And who is it that God is indignant with? He is indignant with his own people, the Jews. As a matter of fact, earlier in the chapter, we're told that all of this comes upon them because of transgression. And a host, verse 12, will be given over to it. That means a whole group of people together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it, referring to this horn, to Antiochus, I believe, he will throw truth to the ground and it will act and it will prosper. No wonder Daniel was sick. He's he's anticipating this wonderful deliverance of his people out of exile back into Jerusalem and realizes the temple's going to be rebuilt, but that's not the end of the story. There's much more to to happen. And when we get into chapter 9, we're going to bust that up into two sections. We'll do Daniel's prayer next week, God willing, and then we'll do the balance of chapter 9 the following week. And in that chapter, we'll find that God gives him minute prophecy right up to the very coming of Christ. So we know when that will happen. They should have known when that would happen. They'll be able to trace it. But on this, he's left in kind of a stunning place, but what he is also left with is, golly, God is in the details of all of this. Not a bit of it has escaped his notice. He's absolutely aware, and he is still dealing with us in our sin. It's true that when the Israelites returned from the exile, they never again entered into idolatry. We know that historically. We know it from archaeology. That after they came back and they rebuilt the temple, idolatry was never an issue. But we also know from other Old Testament books that when they came back, their hearts were not for the rebuilding of God's kingdom, but for the rebuilding of their own lives. Those men who were with us yesterday at the men's breakfast when Pastor Balson talked to us about Haggai, they had started to rebuild the temple and then they kind of gave up. And God confronts them through the prophet Haggai and says, is it time for you to build paneled houses for yourself while my house lays in disarray? And we can ask the same question of ourselves. Is is it our thinking that we've got to invest our lives in making sure that we have material things for self while God's house lays in disarray? Not a physical building, but His people, His kingdom. So that we're more invested in earning money and in our own lives than we are pouring into the lives of the broken people around us 
calling the lost to Christ and ministering to one another. What's our priority? And that's where the Jews were. They had lost the focus. It had, it had come back to, well, we get, we get to have our land back. We get to have our buildings back. We get to have our worship back, uh, at least on some level. But, but what about God's kingdom? What, what does this have to say about what God's doing in the earth? And for that, they stepped away. Self-interest eclipsed everything else. Daniel's seen this. He sees it in a fantastic way. Uh, uh, two speculative concepts here that, even though they're speculative, I think are still reasonable. And that is that this rise of Antiochus prefigures the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., which is why they're so closely tied together. We'll see that later in prophecy, which in turn prefigures the final tribulation before Christ returns. Is it possible that the earth, that Israel, that America will experience times of revival and times of decline before Christ returns? Absolutely. It's very possible. And as we get to Daniel's prayer next week, we're going to say about ourselves, how are our own prayers directed? Do we, do we own the sins of America? Do we own the sins of our own church in this day? Do we own the sins of the race? Or do we somehow separate ourselves and say we're, we're not involved? We can point at China. We can point at Europe. We can point at other civilizations. But aren't we all the same race? And where is our prayer life in regards to the race that Christ died to save lost men? Adam's race. Not just nice, neat Americans. And a few natives where we can scrounge them up. A whole different mindset. But I think what what happens here and what often happens in prophecy is you will see the prefiguring of one thing on top of another on top of another, all ultimately leading to the final outworking of these when there will be a time when a real, the single, the great Antichrist arises and Christ comes in his final coming and destroys him. But we get pictures of these Antichrists. Even as Peter says, already, or John, already in the world there are Antichrists. Secondly, I think it's good for us to take these verses and understand that they help us shed light on the concept of the abomination of desolation, which, as you'll remember when we went through that earlier in, in, uh, in the other vision, that it is a desecration of God's place due to the sin of God's people. It eventually ushers that in. That almost that identical language is used for us in this very chapter, verse 19, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what will be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And as you work down through, he talks about again an abomination, a desolation. It's not the final one, but it gets pictured for us in in this place. Well, I want to draw this to a few applications, and we've got to close. Our time is is biased. Again, I know I've thrown a ton of stuff at you. It's good. It's good. Now you've got to wrestle with it. Um, I, can't, I can't go through every detail, but I do want us to draw some important applications out of this. Um, why? Why do we have passages like this? Why do they still exist for you and me? I can understand why for the Jews under their circumstances, but why for us... Why does God give such great details on matters they could know nothing about? And I want to suggest a number of things here. But the first, at least part of the answer, is that this kind of predictive prophecy, with its imagery of massive distress, is meant to help us understand the nature of pain and suffering in life, period. This is a paradigm we're going to come back to next week in, in Daniel's prayer. We live in a world that abides under the wrath of God. It's still here. From the time in the garden, 
until he returns. We abide under the wrath of God until the final wrath is carried out at his return. We cannot expect a lovely world. We lost that in Adam. There will be pain. There will be heartache. There will be distress. There will be confusion. And yes, God is still Lord over it all and is still going to bring His plan to complete fruition. Some of us look at our own lives. We look at the brokenness of our homes and our families, even our, our bodies, and we say, how can this be? I got saved. I came to Christ. Isn't everything supposed to get fixed? And, and He says, you forget. We're still in a lost world still abiding under the wrath of God. Romans 1, John 3. And that won't change until Christ comes. There will be seasons of excellence, and we've enjoyed great seasons of prosperity in America. Many parts of the world have not. And there will be times of distress. And more than likely, we we can't do a whole lot about them, but cling to the promises of our God that He poured out His wrath on sin in Christ, and all those who find their refuge in Him find complete forgiveness. But like as I prayed at the beginning with the thief on the cross, he believed Christ while he was on the cross, but that didn't mean he got off the cross at that moment. As he said to the other thief, we're suffering because of our own sins. This man isn't. And some of that suffering is still on us. Now, does that mean every pain and every trial and every difficulty you have is a direct result of your personal sin? Of course not. It's the result of the global world in which we live under the wrath of God. But the root of all this, every time, every time you are betrayed by someone you love, every time you are let down by a Christian or a family member, every time you see... Things go crazy with the corruption in our own government. Every time you look at someone with a birth defect, hate sin. Because that's what brought it into the world. Hate it. Hate it with everything within you. And seek the righteousness of Christ. Hate it. Secondly, Predictive prophecy is God's preparation for His people. He wants us to know that when we face these things, they aren't the end. Will Western culture fall before Christ comes? I don't know. But if it does, that's not the end. They were going to face all this and they had to understand Christ has to come still. And they were able to comfort their souls in it. And we need to do exactly the same thing. It's preparation for us that sometimes, beloved Christians as we are, as upright and wonderful and holy as we all are in this room right now, as perfect as we've become, we're going to face some ugly stuff in life. And be prepared. Don't be shocked. doesn't mean it's going to hurt less if you're prepared for it, but it does mean you're prepared for it. And you can go somewhere with it. And lastly, just for time, I want to call your mind back to the the way that Scripture denominates the use of this. And out of 1 Corinthians 14, on the other hand, the one who prophesies, when we speak the word of God to one another, when when under the the working of the Holy Spirit we we know a passage and we use that to to speak, we're, we're aiming at three things. This prophecy of Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 and and 10 and 11. It's all aiming at something. What's it aiming at? Number one, it's aiming at the upbuilding of of God's people that we bind together as we look forward to the outworking of His purposes. That we're brought together, not blown apart. But we're brought together under a common cause, under the, under the common reality of where God's going in the world, and, and we can work with that and encourage one another and grow together and pray together and grow stronger and more unified. And prophecy is for the pers- purpose of encouragement. It's not for the purpose of telling you that, you know, 
your cat's going to get a new collar on the 13th of July. The weirdness of personal prophecy in our day has gotten so strange. But for the encouragement of the soul in trouble, in trial, in tribulation, that, that God is still God and he still loves us and he's still working out his purpose. Christ has come and, and he's coming yet. And, and irrespective of how things look out there right now, he's going to finish his work. And lastly, for consolation. We need consoled over the pain and the sorrow that we face and we get consolation from God's word as it tells us how he has control over these things and is working out his purposes in time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that these things are not given to us as mere objects of curiosity. The idea here is not to get ourselves all tied up in minute details, but to understand fully the wonder of your eternal plan and how you will bring to pass all the things that you have promised, in spite of the fact that at times it doesn't look like it. Thank you for your goodness to us. Console your people so that they don't run about in their trials and tribulations, feeling as though they've been abandoned by you, but trusting in you, resting in you, knowing that you are good and your promises are steadfast and you know every, every, every detail. Even in the hearts of our darkest enemies. And that you will bring to pass all the things that lead up to that very moment when Christ will split the eastern sky and will destroy the Antichrist with the the word of his mouth and we will be raised up with him for eternity. Keep our hearts steadfast and sure in the dark days that may attend us personally or as a church or nationally or globally knowing that our God reigns, we ask in His name. Amen.